The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Funding for the Capital Weekly Podcast is provided by the California Endowment and by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Uh, greetings and welcome to the Capital Weekly Podcast. I'm John Howard and I am joined by Tim Foster. Hello. And our special guest today is Aaron Reed, a veteran lobbyist in Sacramento, a very veteran lobbyist, I think, in Sacramento. You've been here since the late 60s um, doing your trade. And in 78, I think it was, you established Aaron Reed and Associates and the rest is history. You've been around here for, for many moons. I counted up more than 50 clients. I think I counted 52 in the latest tally I took. Everybody from 3M to AT&T to the California Railroad Museum uh, to the Police Officers Research Association to you name it and it seems like you represent them and we've always wanted to talk to you about lobbying in Sacramento. So I guess the first thing I wanted to ask was here we are in the middle of a pandemic. Um, How has that affected the way you do your, your, your thing? What has it meant to you and to your staff um, basically being in lockdown most of the time? Well, it's made it more difficult because we're sort of a people-based business. Uh, We have relationships with people. I think the legislators, staff, and lobby teams like mine uh, like being able to meet and talk and discuss uh, legislation, particularly controversial legislation. It's much more difficult when you're doing it by phone uh, or a Zoom call, Uh, but we have been doing it and it's worked. Uh, it's the only option we have given the pandemic, uh, so we're making it work. But I certainly don't prefer it this way, uh, and I don't think the legislature does either, but we're making the best out of the situation we have. In the normal course of events, if we were in a normal period right now, you basically be walking over to offices where the legislators are or, or talking to them, uh, interviewing them off the floor, or having more FaceTime or having any FaceTime, but you can't do that now. Has that affected the life or death of your clients' interests or bills or are you able to work around that? Uh, no, I don't think it's, I don't think there's an adverse impact. I guess just, you know, we wish we could have greater, you know, personal contact, but we're able to do the job and exchange information via phone calls, texts, uh, conference calls, uh, emails, uh, all sorts of different communication options that we have. Um, it's just that it's not our preference. And for me, having done this 50 years now, um, this is the first time I've ever seen this in my life. And certainly in all of our lifetimes, we've never seen anything like this. Uh, so we're just all doing the best that we can. Uh, but we're able to, to get our messages across and the legislature does consider everything. I heard uh, uh, one of the senators chairing a committee this morning say they actually have more people chiming in on Me Too's than they ever used to have. Uh, maybe it's because people are at home and it's easy to get on the, the conference call and and dial in and register your support or opposition on legislation. So sometimes it goes on for a half an hour, 45 minutes uh, with all those Me Too's that that happen. Uh, but, you know, hopefully it'll be over by the time the session reconvenes in December. 
but I don't see anything changing between now and August 31st when they adjourn. Now, uh, this year they've sort of curtailed the year a bit, and it sure seems to me that we've seen less legislation and less activity at the uh, Capitol in general. Can you speak to that at all? I mean, are there less bills? Was there was there less for you to watch? It just seems like everything has been so focused on the coronavirus and the response that it sort of took the breath away from everything else. Yeah, there, there are actually not that many fewer bills. Uh, towards the end here, they did shave down the number of bills uh, quite a bit, created some controversy between the two houses um, because one house sent the other house more bills than they thought they should have. Uh, but that's sort of inner house squabbling that often occurs about this time in the session. Um, but there, I, there may be fewer bills, but there's very significant bills out there uh, still, very controversial bills, some necessary bills, there's pandemic bills, there's wildfire bills. Um, there's, you know, they're still dealing with a lot of the important issues that have to be dealt with, and they've sort of set aside some of the lesser important issues. You know, I know before... Uh before we went on the with the, formally with the podcast earlier, we were chatting about the perception of law enforcement uh, this year, problems with law enforcement. One of your uh, one of your clients is is PORAC, uh, Police Officers Research Association of California, uh, and one of the messages they had they did a op ed for us that appeared uh, about a week ago, and or even more recently than that, excuse me, over the weekend, and they said make sure you read the fine print and legislation that's out there. There's a lot of controversy right now surrounding law enforcement. But there, it's a message to legislators. Make sure you read the fine print to make sure what we're doing is proper here. Do you have any thoughts about that, about what they were alluding to? And are there bills out there that might be adverse to law enforcement's interests? Or are there, is there room to compromise on these things? We, we, there's, there's room to compromise. We're working, for example, on a licensure bill by Senator Bradford, uh, we're working in a positive, constructive fashion to come up with some uh, amendments that would make sense. And uh, we are uh, hopeful that we'll be able to work something out. Uh, the same way we did last year as I uh, was recalling uh, AB 392 Weber and SB 230 Caballero last year, uh, we negotiated on both of those bills to a very successful conclusion. I want to thank the legislature and in particular Governor Newsom for their assistance in working out amendments. And as a result, last year we passed the most robust uh, use of force policy uh, universal statewide of any state in the nation. Not only that, we also created uh, very vigorous uh, training programs uh, on use of force, uh, which will be overseen by Peace Officer Standards and Training, or the Post Commission, as we call it. Um, so we've shown that we are willing and able to compromise and work things out. Uh, now, maybe some of the bills are more difficult than others. Some of them we don't see a need right now. Uh, it seemed like there was a rush to, to try and do legislation of all sorts without really giving them deep thought. 
and that's our concern is the impact. We're concerned about the impact on the public safety, not just the officer safety, but the public safety as well. Uh, so that's foremost in our minds. And, you know, I also mentioned that I represent the California Association of Highway Patrolmen, and they share the same beliefs as PORAC in terms of, number one, we want to protect the public, we want to make sure they're safe, and we want to make sure officers are safe as well. Uh, so with that guiding principle, uh, we have tried and will continue for the next two weeks uh, to work out uh, some whatever language we can. Um, but I can't, I can't right now predict which bills will survive and which ones uh, maybe won't. Uh, it's hard to know. Uh, but we do appreciate the fact that the leaders are engaged and um, governor's office is engaged. These are very, very major issues that affect all of the population of this state. Do you have any notion of the next couple of weeks, what would be the single most important law enforcement related bill we should be looking at? the public should be aware of or reporters should be looking at uh what's the big the big magilla out there i think one of the important ones is the licensure bill because we, the law enforcement doesn't want a bad cop getting another job uh here in california or anywhere else in the country and so if we get it correct and we're able to have a, a licensing program i think that's going to go a long ways to protecting the people not just of California, but all over. Now, is, uh, there, because we've uh, had... is, is there a similar bill to that in other, any other states? Yes, uh, many other states have that. Um, in fact, we're one of the few that doesn't. Uh, so it makes sense for us to come up with, with a program that is basically leads to decertification of police who have committed crimes that are, are, are so serious that they should never be a police officer. And how many... Just for reference here, how many law enforcement officers are there in the state of California? Probably about 100,000. It depends on, you know, if you count everybody that is has peace officer status, it, we're probably talking right around 100,000. That's a lot of people. Yeah. And that peace officer status means they're allowed or authorized to carry weapons. Is that one of the tests there? That's one of the tests. Now, if you take correctional peace officers, they're, they're peace officers, but obviously they don't want them armed inside of a prison. Yeah. They can be armed outside of the prison when they're doing transport and that sort of thing. But in a prison, uh, they're unarmed because obviously if they were, you know, they could be overrun by inmates and the weapons taken away. Uh, so that would not be uh, a smart move. So I don't believe... They, I mean, they have weapons in the gun towers uh, in certain places in the prison, but I don't think out on the normal yard they would be armed. Uh, so, but, but they're still peace officers. You know, um, this is totally subjective and anecdotal for me, but every time I go out on the freeway, I mean, you mentioned you represent California Association of Highway Patrolmen, so maybe there's a, you have some inside knowledge, but it just seems like they're the worst drivers in the world out there. People passing on the right at 80 miles yeah. an hour, people going from the third yep. lane to yep. take an off-ramp. Uh, every now and then I see somebody getting written up, but I just get the feeling that the enforcement out there on the road is a lot less, and it just really pisses me off. <laughs> so I wondered... Uh, You're absolutely <laughs> right. You are so correct. Um, I did some, some uh, research, and 
looked at the number of officers. We often measure the number of officers per 100,000 licensed drivers, per 100,000 registered vehicles, and maybe more importantly, the number of officers per million miles of vehicles travel. Uh, because that's a, sort of the index of the busyness, how many cars are out there and moving around. Um, and I looked at when Ronald Reagan was governor back in 66 and reelected in 1970. Um, and then I compared that to now. And our staffing has fallen tremendously. Even when George Duke Mason was governor, we asked for a study to be done on staffing. They did the study, but they wouldn't release it until he was walking out the door. And the study showed we needed between two and 3,000 more CHP officers to have anywhere near the same level of service that we had previously. So we're operating two to 3,000 officers short of what we used to have of the ratios that we used to have. So you can drive, as I have, uh, long distances on I-5 and not see a single CHP unit yeah, uh -huh. uh, because they're so they're so uh, understaffed. Um, and it, it's something that is an issue that I think needs to be dealt with. Uh, and we do deal with it periodically, but um, it's, it's, it costs money. And uh, the motor vehicle account right now isn't as flush as it should be. Uh, so it's difficult until we increase the motor vehicle account money there is no money flowing to the gen to to the chp from the general fund i can't imagine there's funding. much money flowing anywhere right now in the general fund yeah is that motor vehicle count down um i assume fines fees forfeitures of some sort flow into that account is that a decline in registrations or a decline in fees collected no or? uh the, interestingly interestingly enough the chp doesn't get a penny from any citation activity, no court fees, nothing. They generate a citation and the, the court fine and penalty assessments goes to local government and trial court funding. They don't get any money from it and don't want any money from tickets because then it would appear as though there's a bounty that there's an incentive to write a ticket because the revenue flows to the department. That's not the case at all. Uh, so the vehicle registration fee is just a dollar amount that you pay to DMV when you register your car. Uh -huh. And that, that fee that you pay is actually three fees. One fee is a VLA, vehicle license fee, and that goes to local government. The MVA, which is a motor vehicle account, that money goes to the state and pays for CHP, DMV, and Air Resources Board. And now there's a third fee that was passed with SB1, uh, which is a brand new fee that doesn't go to any of the things that I just mentioned. It goes to transportation. Uh, so, so that's where the MVA comes from. It is solely a registration fee and uh, it's based on the value of your car. Um, and that's the sole source of funding to the, the 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 part of that fee that goes to transportation, you were talking about like Highway construction or bridge construction, overpass, uh, road improvements, maintenance. Yeah, I believe so. I, I believe so. It's new, and I haven't looked at it in a while. I had to go back and check SB1 to see specifically. Uh, but it was my understanding that money's used for that purpose. Uh, but I'm not. I'm very clear on the VLF and the MVA because uh, those two have been in law for years and years and years. But the, the third one is brand new. Mm -hmm. yep. So, Aaron, you mentioned a minute ago the Reagan administration and, and what the staffing was for the CHP back then. You are one of the only people still working in and around the Capitol 
who was also working during Reagan's gubernatorial term. Yeah. Uh, can you talk about that? What was what was that like? Yeah. What were what are some of your significant memories from from lobbying well, back then I, being involved? The first memory is that I participated in the only override of Ronald Reagan. Uh, when he was governor for eight years, he had one override. That was one that I was working on, and it was led by John Burton, who was a young assembly member at the time. Uh, and and Reagan was closing down the state mental hospitals one by one. He was just simply closing them uh, by blue penciling their budget. And the legislature said, wait a minute, you can't do that. And governor said, yes, I can. And he did. He closed down first. He closed down. I don't know what the order was precisely, but I think it was Modesto State Hospital closed, then Mendocino State Hospital closed, then DeWitt State Hospital up in Auburn closed. And he was planning to close them all because the theory was that because Lanner and Petra Short Act had passed, that all care would be local. And so he had supporters, particularly Bever Beverly Enterprises, that uh, were running uh, homes, uh, like nursing homes or board and care homes, and patients were being cared for there. Well, guess what? That wasn't real care. It was just, you know, board and care wasn't treatment. Uh, but the hospitals were closing, so Burton put a bill in and said the governor can't close any more hospitals without legislative approval. It passed the legislature easily, went to Reagan, and vetoed it. So Burton went for an override in the assembly and got it. Uh, went to the Senate, not so easy. Needed 27 votes, and there weren't 27 Democrats. Uh, needed Republican support. And overriding a governor, as you know, is very, very difficult. So I was working on the ground campaign and with parents and uh, interested stakeholders and, and working with George Moscone, who was the then Senate floor leader and in charge of the override in the Senate. And uh, it was a lot of drama. Uh, bottom line, we overrode Reagan. Hmm. So wow. uh, that was one memory. Uh, the state hospital issue still lives with us today. The homeless we have today, the mentally ill on the streets today, are in some part due to a complete change of how, how we treat them. Yeah. Uh, and, well, we don't treat them. That's the problem. One of the issues right now going on is the, uh, uh, the, the ability of families to have mentally ill relatives, severely mentally ill relatives, uh, detained for a period of time. They already do this. Laura's law stemmed from that. And they already do that, but there's a question about whether it, to expand it and make it permanent. We've actually had uh, stories in Capital Weekly about that. Do you have any idea or if that has a shot at passing? It looks like it's popular, but anything can change here in the last uh, couple of minutes. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I haven't been really doing a lot of work on that except for the law enforcement problem of having to deal with the mentally ill on the street. Uh, so I certainly hope that we can, you know, increase the length of time that somebody can be held a 72-hour revolving door is what the Lanham and Patrick Short Act created, and so they're in and out quickly, and you can't hold them unless they are a danger to themselves or others, and that's been defined as they had to attempt to murder somebody or commit suicide. Uh, that's a very high standard, um, and, and if you don't meet that, then they can't keep you more than 72 hours, except for the exception you just cited. Um, so there needs to be uh, changes, I think, in the law, because these people need help. Uh, some of them need medication. Some of them need counseling. Um, so there's there's more work that needs to be done. Aaron, you mentioned uh, you and Tim had asked a question about your memories from early on lobbying. Do you have any 
thoughts about lobbying with uh, when um, you know Jerry Brown first time around when he was in George Duke Majin. Uh, yeah. Wilson. Yeah. Anything stand? Yeah. Jesse. Oh, yeah. Jerry. You, you mentioned Jerry <laughs> Brown and brought a smile to my face <laughs> because I also overrode Jerry Brown. Was that that death I'm penalty? I'm the only lobbyist that I know of. Was uh, it a death no, penalty? No, I overrode him on a CHP. Um, Reagan signed into law a formula for CHP officers in 1973 uh, or 4. I think it was 74. It was 74, just before Jerry took office in January of 75. So we had a formula, and for four years, from 75 to 79, Jerry Brown refused to honor the formula. And the CHP officers had fallen over 20% behind. They were not happy about that, uh, but less happy that the governor refused to, to honor a law that had been duly passed and signed by Reagan. Uh, so there was no collective bargaining at that time. They just simply relied on the legislative actions for for pay. So um, anyway, we ran a bill to catch him up on pay, and Jerry Brown vetoed it, and we overrode his veto. So that's two overrides for me uh, in the same decade. Um, I don't know anybody else has done that. but They must love you in the governor's office. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, it was hard. Uh, it was hard because he had just been, in 79, just been reelected to his second term. He was very powerful. Obviously, governor can threaten to veto everybody's bill or, you know, cut pork out of the budget, or do whatever. Uh, so it is not never, ever easy. There's not been any overrides since Jerry Brown. Mm-hmm. Really? Uh, none. Now, you... You started your, your lobbying business in 76, is that correct? I started my own in 78. 78. And who were you with before that? I, I was actually with the California State Employees Association um, back before there was bargaining. They were a big group, uh, an association. They were not affiliated with uh, organized labor, uh, but uh, they were over 200,000 members. And uh, I got involved. That's where I got involved in the closure of the state hospitals. Uh, but I quickly left there in 78 and formed my own firm. But I had met the firefighters and high patrol officers and engineers and state scientists during that time. And I represent those four groups today, uh, 40, 40 some years later. You represent PEG and the scientists, correct? That is correct. Uh, Aaron, you've been around, I almost said forever, but for many, many, many years. In fact, I think you were lobbying when I was in high school, which is... That means you're really old because I'm old because I'm old too. So, um, uh, so yeah. are you retiring soon or not? I mean, I don't. There's no reason to if you don't want to, and of course you don't want to if you're having fun. But I just wonder, you know, um, is that something you thought I, about? I, I will tell you, I have I have a great lobby team. I have great clients. I I'm careful about who I represent. I've turned down many many clients that I didn't think fit properly into our uh, client family. Uh, but I look at people, I look around me, I look at uh, Mick Jagger, I look at Paul <laughs> McCartney, they're older than me, and those guys are still rocking, and I love it, I love it. I think Ringo Starr is 80 it, years old now. Yeah, oh my God. I mean, you know what? I mean, I, I saw Paul McCartney when the Golden One opened. It was the absolute best con, con, uh, concert I have ever seen in my life. Uh, two and a half hours, nonstop, no intermission, no opening act. It was all Paul McCartney. 
Uh, and he, I mean, he does it because he loves it, not because he needs the money. I do what I do because I love it, not because I need the money. I don't need the money, uh, but I like, I love what I do. Now, speaking of, so here's one thing I think most people will not know. You actually are a musician and you played the drums back in the 60s. Is that correct? Yeah. How did you know that? You told me that, I forget where, at some dinner oh, somewhere oh. a long time ago. Yeah. And you mentioned that. And yeah, so yeah. you played the drums and, and you did That's that right. for a while. I did. I did. And uh, I did a little keyboards and, and some uh, some little bit of guitar. But I haven't done that in a long time. But you were you in an actual like performing band at one back in I those was, days? I was, I, I was in a band in high school called the Pacers, P A C E R S. I don't know where we came up with that name, but it was called the Pacers. We just played little little stuff, dances and that sort of thing. And that was uh, what? Where was that? Where was your high school? I went to a La Sierra High School here in Carmichael. Oh, uh, okay. Graduated in nineteen sixty four. Uh, that high school is closed. Uh, it's something else, or using a facility for something, um, but it's no longer a high school. Uh, Aaron Reed, thank you very much uh, for taking the time and talk to us. And you heard it here first. Aaron was a rock star in high school, or at least rock musician in high school. Um, uh, thanks again. Tim Foster, thank you very much. Thanks, John. And this is John Howard, and we will see you next time around. Thanks again.